Book First, Chapter Second, Parts One to Four of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells, Book First, Chapter Second, Parts One to Four. CHAPTER THE SECOND ON MY LAUNCH INTO THE WORLD AND THE LAST I SAW OF BLADESOVER When I was thus banished from Bladesover House, as it was then thought for good and all, I was sent by my mother in a vindictive spirit, first to her cousin Nicodemus, Frapp, and then as a fully indentured apprentice, to my uncle Ponderevo. I ran away from the care of my cousin Nicodemus back to Bladesover House. My cousin, Nicodemus Frapp, was a baker in a back street, a slum rather, just off that miserable narrow, mean high road that threads those exquisite beads, Rochester and Chatham. He was, I must admit, a shock to me, much dominated by a young, plump, prolific, malingering wife, a bent, slow-moving, unwilling dark man with flour in his hair and eyelashes, in the lines of his face and the seams of his coat. I've never had a chance to correct my early impression of him, and he still remains an almost dreadful memory, a sort of caricature of incompetent simplicity. As I remember him, indeed, he presented the servile tradition perfected. He had no pride in his person. Fine clothes and dressing up wasn't for the likes of him, and so that he got his wife, who was no artist at it, to cut his black hair at irregular intervals and let his nails become disagreeable to the fastidious eye he had no pride in his business nor any initiative his only virtues were not doing certain things and hard work your uncle said my mother all grown-up cousins were uncles by courtesy among the victorian middle class isn't much to look at or talk to but he's a good hard-working man there was a sort of base honorableness about toil however needless, in that system of inversion. Another point of honor was to rise at or before dawn, and then laboriously muddle about. It was very distinctly impressed on my mind that the good, hard-working man would have thought it falalish to own a pocket-handkerchief. Poor old Frapp, dirty and crushed by, product of Bladesover's magnificence. He made no fight against the world at all. He was floundering in small debts that were not so small, but that finally they overwhelmed him. Whenever there was occasion for any exertion, his wife fell back upon pains and her condition, and God sent them many children, most of whom died, and so, by their coming and going, gave a double exercise in the virtues of submission. Resignation to God's will was the common device of these people in the face of every duty and every emergency. There were no books in the house. I doubt if either of them had retained the capacity for reading consecutively for more than a minute or so, and it was with amazement that day after day, over and above stale bread, one beheld food and again more food amidst the litter that held permanent session on the living-room table. One may have doubted if either of them felt discomfort in this dusty darkness of existence, if it was not that they did visibly seek consolation. They sought this and found it of a Sunday, 
not in strong drink and raving, but in imaginary draughts of blood. They met with twenty or thirty other darkened and unclean people, all dressed in dingy colors that would not show the dirt, in a little brick-built chapel equipped with the spavined roarer of a harmonium, and there solaced their minds on the thought that all that was fair and free in life, all that struggled, all that planned and made, all pride and beauty and honor, all fine and enjoyable things, were irrevocably damned to everlasting torments. They were the self-appointed confidants of God's mockery of his own creation. So at any rate they stick in my mind. Vaguer, and yet hardly less agreeable than this cosmic jest, this coming, ya, yeah, clever, and general serving out and showing up of the lucky, the bold, and the cheerful, was their own predestination to glory. There is a fountain, filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. So they sang. I hear the drone and wheeze of that hymn now. I hated them with the bitter, uncharitable condemnation of boyhood, and a twinge of that hate comes back to me. As I write the words, the sounds, and then the scene return. These obscure, undignified people, a fat woman with asthma, an old Welsh milk-seller with a tumor on his bald head, who was the intellectual leader of the sect, a huge-voiced haberdasher with a big black beard, a white-faced, extraordinarily pregnant woman, his wife, a bespeckled rate-collector with a bent back. I hear the talk about souls, the strange battered old phrases that were coined ages ago in the seaports of the sun-dry Levant, of balm of Gilead, and manna in the desert, of gourds that give shade and water in a thirsty land. I recall again the way in which, at the conclusion of the service, the talk remained pious in form, but became medical in substance, and how the women got together for obstetric whisperings. I, as a boy, did not matter, and might overhear. If Bladesover is my key for the explanation of England, I think my invincible persuasion that I understand Russia was engendered by the circle of Uncle Frapp. I slept in a dingy, sheeted bed with the two elder survivors of Frapp fecundity, and spent my weekdays in helping in the laborious disorder of the shop and bakehouse, in incidental deliveries of bread and so forth, and in parrying the probings of my uncle into my relations with the blood and his confidential explanations that ten shillings a week, which was what my mother paid him, was not enough to cover my accommodation. He was very anxious to keep that, but also he wanted more. There were neither books nor any seat nor corner in that house where reading was possible. No newspaper ever brought the clash of worldly things into its heavenward seclusion. Horror of it all grew in me daily, and whenever I could I escaped into the streets and tramped about Chatham. The news shops appealed to me particularly. One saw there smudgy illustrated sheets, the police news in particular, in which vilely drawn pictures brought home to the dullest intelligence an interminable succession of squalid crimes, women murdered and put into boxes, buried under floors, old men bludgeoned at midnight by robbers, people thrust suddenly out of trains, happy lovers shot, vitrioled and so forth by rivals. I got my first glimpse of the life of pleasure in foully drawn pictures of police raids, on this and that. 
Interspersed with these sheets were others in which Sloper, the urban John Bull, had his fling with gin-bottle and obese umbrella, or the kindly empty faces of the royal family appeared and reappeared, visiting this, opening that, getting married, getting offspring, lying in state, doing everything but anything, a wonderful, good-meaning, impenetrable race apart. I have never revisited Chatham. The impression it has left on my mind is one of squalid compression, unlit by any gleam of a maturer charity. All its effects arrange themselves as antithetical to the Bladesover effects. They confirmed and intensified all that Bladesover suggested. Bladesover declared itself to be the land, to be essentially England. I have already told how its airy spaciousness, its wide dignity, seemed to thrust village, church, and vicarage into corners, into a secondary and conditional significance. Here one gathered the corollary of that. Since the whole wide country of Kent was made up of contiguous bladesovers, and for the gentlefolk, the surplus of population, all who were not good tenants nor good laborers, Church of England, submissive and respectful, were necessarily thrust together, jostled out of sight, to fester as they might in this place that had the colors and even the smells of a well-packed dustbin. They should be grateful even for that. That one felt was a theory of it all. And I loafed about this wilderness of crowded dinginess, with young, receptive, wide-open eyes, and through the blessings, or curse, of some fairy godmother of mine, asking and asking again, but after all, why? I wandered up through Rochester once, and had a glimpse of the Stour Valley above the town, all horrible with cement works, and foully smoking chimneys, and rows of workmen's cottages, minute, ugly, uncomfortable, and grimy. So I had my first intimation of how industrialism might live in a landlord's land. I spent some hours, too, in the streets that give upon the river, drawn by the spell of the sea. But I saw barges and ships stripped of magic and mostly devoted to cement, ice, timber, and coal. The sailors looked to me gross and slovenly men, and the shipping struck me as clumsy, ugly, old, and dirty. I discovered that most sails don't fit the ships that hoist them, and that there may be as pitiful and squalid a display of poverty with a vessel as with a man. When I saw colliers unloading, watched the workers in the hold filling up silly little sacks, and the succession of blackened, half-naked men that ran to and fro with these along a plank over a thirty-foot drop into filth and mud, I was first seized with admiration of their courage and toughness, and then... But after all, why? And the stupid ugliness of all this waste of muscle and endurance came home to me. Among other things, it obviously wasted and deteriorated the coal, and I had imagined great things of the sea. Well, anyhow, for a time, that vocation was stilled. But such impressions came into my leisure, and of that I had no excess. Most of my time was spent doing things for Uncle Frapp, and my evenings and nights perforce in the company of the two eldest of my cousins. He was errand boy at an oil shop, and fervently pious, and of him I saw nothing until the evening except at meals. The other was enjoying the midsummer holidays without any great elation, 
A singularly thin and abject, stunted creature he was, whose chief liveliness was to pretend to be a monkey, and who I am now convinced had some secret disease that drained his vitality away. If I met him now, I should think him a pitiful little creature, and be extremely sorry for him. Then I felt only a wondering aversion. He sniffed horribly. He was tired out by a couple of miles of loafing. He never started any conversation, and he seemed to prefer his own company to mine. His mother, poor woman, said he was the thoughtful one. Serious trouble came suddenly out of a conversation we held in bed one night. Some particularly pious phrase of my elder cousin's irritated me extremely, and I avowed outright my entire disbelief in the whole scheme of revealed religion. I had never said a word about my doubts to anyone before, except to Ewart, who had first evolved them. I had never settled my doubts until at this moment when I spoke. But it came to me, then, that the whole scheme of salvation of the Fraps was not simply doubtful, but impossible. I fired this discovery out into the darkness with the greatest promptitude. My abrupt denials certainly scared my cousin amazingly. At first, they could not understand what I was saying, and when they did, I fully believed they expected an instant answer in thunderbolts and flames. They gave me more room in the bed forthwith, and then the elder sat up and expressed his sense of my awfulness. I was already a little frightened at my temerity, but when he asked me categorically to unsay what I had said, what could I do but confirm my repudiation? "'There's no hell,' I said, "'and no eternal punishment. No God would be such a fool as that.' My elder cousin cried aloud in horror, and the younger lay scared, but listening. "'Then you mean,' said my elder cousin, when at last he could bring himself to argue, "'you might do just as you liked?' "'If you were cat enough,' said I. Our little voices went on interminably, and at one stage my cousin got out of bed and made his brother do likewise, and knelt in the night dimness and prayed at me. That I found trying, but I held out valiantly. "'Forgive him!' said my cousin. He knows not what he saith. Oh, you can pray if you like, I said, but if you're going to cheek me in your prayers, I draw the line. The last I remember of that great discussion was my cousin deploring the fact that he should ever sleep in the same bed with an infidel. The next day he astonished me by telling the whole business to his father. This was quite outside all my codes. Uncle Nicodemus sprang it upon me at the midday meal. "'You've been saying queer things, George,' he said abruptly. "'You better mind what you're saying.' "'What did he say, father?' said Mrs. Frapp. "'Things I couldn't repeat,' said he. "'What things?' I said hotly. "'Ask him,' said my uncle, pointing with his knife to his informant, and making me realize the nature of my offense.' My aunt looked at the witness. Not, she framed a question. Was, said my uncle, blasphemy. My aunt couldn't touch another mouthful. I was already a little troubled in my conscience by my daring, and now I began to feel the black enormity of the course upon which I had embarked. I was only talking sense, I said. 
I had a still more dreadful moment when presently I met my cousin in the brick alley behind the yard that led back to his grocer's shop. "'You sneak!' I said, and smacked his face hard forthwith. "'Now then,' said I. He started back, astonished and alarmed. His eyes met mine, and I saw a sudden gleam of resolution. He turned his other cheek to me. "'It it!' he said. "'It it! I'll forgive you!' I felt I had never encountered a more detestable way of evading a licking. I shoved him against the wall and left him there, forgiving me, and went back into the house. "'You better not speak to your cousins, George,' said my aunt, "'till you're in a better state of mind.' I became an outcast forthwith. At supper that night a gloomy silence was broken by my cousin saying, "'E hit me for telling you, and I turned the other cheek, muvver. "'E's got the evil one behind him now, a ridin' on his back.' said my aunt, to the grave discomfort of the eldest girl who sat beside me. After supper, my uncle, in a few ill-chosen words, prayed me to repent before I slept. "'Suppose you was took in your sleep, George,' he said. "'Where'd you be then? You just think of that, me boy.' By this time I was thoroughly miserable and frightened, and this suggestion unnerved me dreadfully but I kept up an impenitent front. "'To wake an L,' said Uncle Nicodemus, in gentler tones. "'You don't want to wake an L, George, burnin' and screamin' forever, do you? You wouldn't like that.' He tried very hard to get me to just have a look at the bake-house fire before I retired. "'It might move you,' he said. I was awake longest that night. My cousin slept, the sleep of faith on either side of me. I decided I would whisper my prayers, and stopped midway because I was ashamed, and perhaps also because I had an idea one didn't square God like that. "'No,' I said, with a sudden confidence. "'Damn me if you're coward enough, but you're not. No, you couldn't be.' I woke my cousins up with emphatic digs, and told them as much, triumphantly, and went very peacefully to sleep with my act of faith accomplished. I slept not only through that night, but for all my nights since then. So far as any fear of divine injustice goes, I sleep soundly, and shall, I know, to the end of things. That declaration was an epoch in my spiritual life. 2. But I didn't expect to have the whole meeting on Sunday turned on to me. It was. It all comes back to me, that convergence of attention, even the faint leathery smell of its atmosphere returns, and the coarse feel of my aunt's black dress beside me in contact with my hand. I see again the old Welsh milkman wrestling with me. They all wrestled with me, by prayer or exhortation, and I was holding out stoutly, though convinced now by the contagion of their universal conviction, that by doing so I was certainly and hopelessly damned. I felt that they were right, that God was probably like them, and that on the whole it didn't matter. And to simplify the business thoroughly, I had declared I didn't believe anything at all. They confuted me by texts from Scripture, which I now perceive was an illegitimate method of reply. 
when I got home, still impenitent, and eternally lost and secretly very lonely and miserable and alarmed, Uncle Nicodemus docked my Sunday pudding. One person only spoke to me like a human being on that day of wrath, and that was the younger Frapp. He came up to me in the afternoon while I was confined upstairs with a Bible and my own thoughts. Hello, he said, and fretted about. Do you mean to say there isn't no one, he said, funking the word. No one? No one watching yer? Always. Why should there be? I asked. You can't help thoughts, said my cousin. Anyhow, you mean, he stopped hovering. I suppose I oughtn't to be talking to you. He hesitated and flitted away with a guilty back glance over his shoulder. The following week made life quite intolerable for me. These people forced me at last into an atheism that terrified me. When I learnt that next Sunday the wrestling was to be resumed, my courage failed me altogether. I happened upon a map of Kent in a stationer's window on Saturday, and that set me thinking of one form of release. I studied it intently for half an hour, perhaps, on Saturday night, got a route list of villages well fixed in my memory, and got up and started for Bladesover about five on Sunday morning while my two bedmates were still fast asleep. 3. I remember something, but not so much of it as I should like to recall, of my long tramp to Bladesover House. The distance from Chatham is almost exactly seventeen miles, and it took me until nearly one. It was very interesting, and I do not think I was very fatigued, though I got rather pinched by one boot. The morning must have been very clear, because I remember that near Itchenstow Hall I looked back and saw the estuary of the Thames that river that has since played so large a part in my life. But at the time, I did not know it was the Thames. I thought this great expanse of mud flats and water was the sea, which I had never yet seen nearly. And out upon it stood ships, sailing ships, and a steamer or so, going up to London or down out into the great seas of the world. I stood for a long time watching these and thinking whether, after all, I should not have done better to have run away to sea. The nearer I drew to Bladesover, the more doubtful I grew of the duality of my reception, and the more I regretted that alternative. I suppose it was the dirty clumsiness of the shipping I had seen nearly that put me out of mind of that. I took a shortcut through the warren across the corner of the main park to intercept the people from the church. I wanted to avoid meeting anyone before I met my mother, and so I went to a place where the path passed between banks and, without exactly hiding, stood up among the bushes. This place, among other advantages, eliminated any chance of seeing Lady Drew, who would drive round by the carriage road. Standing up to waylay in this fashion, I had a queer feeling of brigandage, as though I was some intrusive sort of bandit among these orderly things. It is the first time I remember having that outlaw feeling distinctly, a feeling that has played a large part in my subsequent life. I felt there existed no place for me that I had to drive myself in. Presently, down the hill, the servants appeared, straggling by twos and threes, first some of the garden people and the butler's wife with them, then the two laundry maids, odd inseparable old creatures, 
then the first footman talking to the butler's little girl, and at last, walking grave and breathless beside old Anne and Miss Fison, the black figure of my mother. My boyish mind suggested the adoption of a playful form of appearance. Coo-wee, mother, said I, coming out against the sky. Coo-ee! My mother looked up, went very white, and put her hand to her bosom. I suppose there was a fearful fuss about me, and, of course, I was quite unable to explain my reappearance, but I held out stoutly. I won't go back to Chatham. I'll drown myself first. The next day my mother carried me off to Wimblehurst, took me fiercely and aggressively to an uncle I had never heard of before, near though the place was to us. She gave me no word as to what was to happen, and I was too subdued by her manifest wrath and humiliation at my last misdemeanor to demand information. I don't for one moment think Lady Drew was nice about me. The finality of my banishment was endorsed and underlined and stamped home. I wished very much now that I had run away to sea, in spite of the coal dust and squalor Rochester had revealed to me. Perhaps overseas one came to different lands. 4. I do not remember much of my journey to Wimblehurst with my mother except the image of her as sitting bolt upright as rather disdaining the third-class carriage in which we travelled, and how she looked away from me out of the window when she spoke of my uncle. I have not seen your uncle, she said, since he was a boy, she added grudgingly. Then he was supposed to be clever. She took little interest in such qualities as cleverness. He married about three years ago and set up for himself in Wimblehurst, so I suppose she had some money. She mused on scenes she had long dismissed from her mind. Teddy, she said at last, in the tone of one who has been feeling in the dark and finds, he was called Teddy, about your age. Now he must be twenty-six or seven. I thought of my uncle as Teddy directly I saw him. There was something in his personal appearance that in the light of that memory phrased itself at once as Teddiness, a certain tedidity. To describe it in and other terms is more difficult. It is nimbleness without grace, and alertness without intelligence. He whisked out of his shop upon the pavement, a short figure in grey and wearing grey carpet slippers. One had a sense of a young faddish face behind gilt glasses, wiry hair that stuck up and forward over the forehead, an irregular nose that had its aquiline moments, and that the body betrayed an equatorial laxity, an incipient bow-window, as the image goes. He jerked out of the shop, came to a stand on the pavement outside, regarded something in the window with infinite appreciation, stroked his chin, and, as abruptly, shot sideways into the door again, charging through it as it were behind an extended hand. "'That must be him,' said my mother, catching at her breath. We came past the window whose contents I was presently to know by heart, a very ordinary chemist's window, except that there was a frictional electrical machine, an air pump, and two or three tripods and retorts replacing the customary blue, yellow, and red bottles above. There was a plaster of Paris horse to indicate veterinary medicines among these breakables and below were scent packets and diffusers and sponges and soda-water siphons and such-like things.
Only in the middle there was a rubricated card, very neatly painted by hand, with these words. Buy Ponderevo's cough lictus now. Now. Why? Two pence cheaper than in winter. You store apples, why not the medicine you are bound to need? In which appeal I was to recognize presently my uncle's distinctive note. My uncle's face appeared above a card of infant's comforters in the glass panel of the door. I perceived his eyes were brown, and that his glasses creased his nose. It was manifest he did not know us from Adam. A stare of scrutiny allowed an expression of commercial deference to appear in front of it, and my uncle flung open the door. "'You don't know me?' panted my mother. My uncle would not own he did not, but his curiosity was manifest. My mother sat down on one of the little chairs before the soap and patent medicine pile counter, and her lips opened and closed. "'A glass of water, madam?' said my uncle, waved his hand in a sort of curve, and shot away. My mother drank the water and spoke. "'That boy,' she said, "'takes after his father. He grows more like him every day, and so I have brought him to you.' "'His father, madam?' "'George!' For a moment the chemist was still at a loss. He stood behind the counter with the glass my mother had returned to him in his hand. Then comprehension grew. "'By gosh!' he said. "'Lord!' he cried. His glasses fell off. He disappeared replacing them behind a pile of boxed-up bottles of blood mixture. Eleven thousand virgins!' I heard him cry. The glass was banged down. "'Oriental gums!' He shot away out of the shop through some masked door. One heard his voice, "'Susan! Susan!' Then he reappeared with an extended hand. "'Well, how are you?' he said. "'I was never so surprised in my life. Fancy! You!' He shook my mother's impassive hand and then mine, very warmly, holding his glasses on with his left forefinger. "'Come right in!' he cried. "'Come right in! Better late than never!' He led the way into the parlor behind the shop. After Bladesover, that apartment struck me as stuffy and petty, but it was very comfortable in comparison with the frap living room. It had a faint, disintegrating smell of meals about it, and my most immediate impression was of the remarkable fact that something was hung about or wrapped round or draped over everything. There was bright patterned muslin round the gas bracket in the middle of the room, round the mirror over the mantel, stuffed with ball fringe along the mantel and casing in the fireplace, I first saw ball fringe here, and even the lamp on the little bureau wore a shade like a large muslin hat. The tablecloth had ball fringe, and so had the window curtains, and the carpet was a bed of roses. There were little cupboards on either side of the fireplace, and in the recesses ill-made shelves packed with books, and enriched with pinked American cloth. There was a dictionary lying face downward on the table, and the open bureau was littered with foolscap paper and the evidence of recently abandoned toil. My eye caught the Ponderevo patent flat, a machine you can live in, written in large firm letters. My uncle opened a little door, like a cupboard door, in the corner of this room, and revealed the narrowest twist of staircase I had ever set eyes upon. "'Susan!' he bawled again. "'Wanchy! Someone to see you! Surprisin!' 
There came an inaudible reply, and a sudden loud bump over our heads, as of some article of domestic utility pettishly flung aside. Then the cautious steps of someone descending the twist, and then my aunt appeared in the doorway with her hand upon the jam. "'It's Aunt Ponderevo!' cried my uncle. "'George's wife, and she's brought over her son.' His eye roamed about the room. He darted to the bureau with a sudden impulse and turned the sheet about the patent flat face down. Then he waved his glasses at us. "'You know, Susan, my elder brother George. I told you about him lots of times.' He fretted across the hearth-rug and took up a position there, replaced his glasses, and coughed. My Aunt Susan seemed to be taking it in. She was then rather a pretty, slender woman of twenty-three or four, I suppose, and I remember being struck by the blueness of her eyes and the clear freshness of her complexion. She had little features, a button nose, a pretty chin, and a long, graceful neck that stuck out of her pale blue cotton morning dress. There was a look of half-assumed perplexity on her face, a little quizzical wrinkle of the brow that suggested a faintly amused attempt to follow my uncle's mental operations, a vain attempt and a certain hopelessness that had in succession become habitual. She seemed to be saying, Oh, Lord, what's he giving me this time? And, as I came to know her better, I detected as a complication of her effort of apprehension a subsidiary riddle to what's he giving me and that was to borrow a phrase from my school-book language is it keeps she looked at my mother and me and back to her husband again you know he said george well she said to my mother descending the last three steps of the staircase and holding out her hand you're welcome though it's a surprise i can't ask you to have anything i'm afraid for there isn't anything in the house she smiled and looked at her husband banteringly unless he makes up something with his old chemicals which he's quite equal to doing my mother shook hands stiffly and told me to kiss my aunt well let's all sit down said my uncle suddenly whistling through his clenched teeth and briskly rubbing his hands together he put up a chair for my mother raised the blind of the little window, lowered it again, and returned to his hearth-rug. "'I'm sure,' he said, as one who decides, "'I'm very glad to see you.'" End of Book First, Chapter Second, Parts One to Four Recording by William Tomko.